Welcome to today's Hemp Barons podcast, everyone. I'm host Joy Beckerman, and so happy to bring a great show with a special guest to you today. And first, let's talk for a moment about updates uh, from what's going on in our country, a movement of compassion, a movement of human rights, a movement of justice. All four officers in the death of George Floyd have now been charged. Uh, The lead murderers charged, Derek Chauvin, have been upgraded to second-degree murder. And the other three officers have now finally been charged with aiding and abetting of different types. There are some details around that, and I I find that even the uh, main news organizations don't have all of the details correct or in sync. But that's the bottom line is justice is on its way for those four officers. And in terms of the protest, the malevolent destructive infiltrators appear to have abated. And we're seeing growing protests now in hundreds of cities in all 50 states and a groundswell of grassroots organization that's taking place very quickly with synagogues, mosques, and churches, our spiritual community really beginning to anchor the movement as it did so effectively in the 1960s. And remember in the 1960s, we had phone trees, word of mouth, and Xerox copying machines had only basically just been invented in 1959. Now we have all of these powerful tools at our disposal to organize people, to relay information, to fact check. Uh, This movement is on fire and it's not going away. We're going to take it all the way home. For example, entities and communities are starting petitions and movements on their own to remove known racist law enforcement leadership personnel and to end contracts with police departments. The revolutionary words to live by, think globally, act locally, are finally screaming in our ears. Because the reality is there's no magic government or magic law that's really ever going to solve our challenges. There's no magic amount of money that's going to solve our challenges. It's us. It's people, one by one, taking responsibility for and acting on what we can heal and what we can change in our own neighborhoods. And then our own neighborhoods taking responsibility for and acting on what we can heal and what we can change in our own communities. So neighborhood by neighborhood, community by community, it's people power that will heal this world. We are the change we wish to see in the world, and we are the ones we've been waiting for. And we're going to heal this world. We'll talk about healing. Michael McGuffin, our guest today, president of the American Herbal Products Association, or APA, as they are so well-known throughout the hemp and dietary supplement communities. He's been active in the herbal industry since 1975. He's a genius. He's a guru. He's a standard and ethics and code of federal regulations expert. And APA's contributions over the last decade, 10 full years they've had a cannabis committee, to the advancement of the cannabinoid industry is immeasurable. When Michael starts talking, I listen, I take it down. He's just an absolute treasure, a a legend and also a formal legend as named by New Hope Natural Media. So get ready for a great interview with Michael and I'll see you again next week. In the meantime, I'm wishing everyone and your families good health, inspiration, to find your purpose, to get out there, to join this movement, and to get active. Well, hello, Michael. Thank you so much for being with us on Hemp Barons today. Well, you're quite welcome, Joy, and I greatly appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your audience about this uh, herb hemp. It's something that's uh, very much on our minds for the last uh, decade now. And I, uh, like, uh, again, appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Well, we are the beneficiaries of the true uh, expertise that you are about to 
to share with the listeners and with this promising emerging industry. As I often say, uh, when I introduce you at conferences or elsewhere, I say, when Michael McGuffin speaks, I will grab a napkin to write down what he's saying. And that, and th- th- nothing could be more true. So folks, if all you have is a napkin, write, start writing on it. Or of course, go to our uh, website to replay this episode, because Michael is an expert upon experts uh, in the herbal industry, in the dietary supplement industry, and very much as it relates to hemp dietary supplements. Now, Michael, APA, the American Herbal Products Association, is playing such an important role in the development and, and standards and ethics. And we're, we're so blessed on the, on the U.S. Hemp Authority to have Holly Johnson, your chief science officer's brain, um, as, as we move together as an industry. But you took this on. You have been in herbs and in dietary supplements now since 1974. This was before there even was a legal dietary supplement industry. And APA then was formed in 1982, again, even before there was really this legalized dietary supplement industry. It was the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, which, as you well know, started out as the Health Freedom Act. Uh, and then evolved into Deshay, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, came in the early 90s, uh, during which time you were a, a member of the Board of Trustees for APA for a full decade before you became this important association's president in 1999. So you're now celebrating 21 years. And APA, if we could start out with the Cannabis Committee that APA created some years ago, really one of the first, I think the first, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong on that, Michael, mover um, in in recognizing this opportunity, recognizing the need for the industry to start to lead uh, the, the CBD and cannabinoid industry. And you created the Cannabis Committee. Let's take it from there, mister. Sure. We, we uh, chartered our Cannabis Committee in, in June of uh, 2010, so it's been 10 years now. And then there are also activists, but more on the medical marijuana and adult use marijuana activist organizations that long precede us and that are very important players like Normal and the Marijuana Policy Project. But what we brought to the table in 2010 and what we thought was needed was and our a unique experience that APA had at that time was already decades of engagement with federal regulatory agencies on proper practices for oral dosage herbal products. And we recognized that uh, the, the emergence of hemp products in the marketplace was inevitably going to go to tablets and capsules and tinctures. And we already knew a, a lot about how to interact with the Food and Drug Administration, how to address labeling issues, how to uh, work together in an industry to create uh, self-regulatory models where necessary. And some of our earliest outreach, um, I'll remember this uh, for uh, years to come, uh, when I first met Steph Shearer with the Americans for Safe Access, another real leader um, in the medical marijuana side, What Steph said to me, she thanked me for recognizing, uh, for APA's recognition that our tent, our herbal tent was big enough 
for this herb to live here too, because she was really a strong advocate for recognizing hemp in the community of botanical ingredients rather than some isolated herb that was somehow uh, a discovery of natural medicine or natural products. And I thought that was very important and, uh, and I appreciated Steph's uh, recognition of that. It wasn't really how we started uh, in, in our initial discussion of forming this committee, but as soon as she said that, it kind of clarified that we would be able to bring the resources that we developed over at that, uh, as you said, APA was formed in 1982, so it was already uh, nearly 30 years in. We could bring all those resources and share them with the developing hemp uh, community and product marketplace, and that's what we've tried to do in the interim. She's incredible, and you know, of course, that's exactly what cannabis preparations were. They were botanical preparations, as we well know, uh, the golden age, really, of the United States or cannabis apothecary uh, between 1830 and, and 1937. So everything old is new again, and and uh, Steph is just an incredible leader, and we cannot thank you enough. Recognizing that and uh, and for recognizing really the the future um, of what all of these tremendous properties with their different wellness and other benefits can bring uh, from this plant. APA has created a number of guidance documents for the uh, for the industry, and we at the U.S. Hemp Authority definitely refer to um, some of these guidance documents. Could you take a moment to explain uh, the guidance documents that you've created for this industry, and um, what whether or not certain of them are available publicly, and other avail others available uh, for being a member of APA, which is one of the the most valuable trade associations that a, a person, a company, an industry leader can be involved with if you are talking about dietary supplements or herbal medicine. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, again, right at the beginning, we formed the committee and we looked at the uh, needs of uh, developing marketplace. And remarkable was that so many companies were coming into this business that had no prior experience of selling an FDA-regulated product. They were entrepreneurial. They were true believers. They were strong advocates. They were committed to sharing their personal experience, all of which I think are great reasons to um, bring products to the marketplace. But what they were lacking was hands-on, real-world experience. And we had been developing guidance documents for our members for quite a number of years. And so we just borrowed that model and created uh, four different, we call them recommendations to regulators um, that addressed best practice for uh, cultivation, uh, for manufacturing, for retail dispensing, and for lab practice. And there, the, the documents, you, you could just about go in and substitute any other botanical, uh, with the exception of that we had issues like um, THC to deal with on the non um, the products that are intended to remove the THC or limit the level. We had security issues in the um, marijuana medical cannabis uh, side, 
So there were some specific elements, but largely we were borrowing what we had learned over the prior decades and sharing that with this community. But we also, and this is just our, our process um, for any kind of guidance, we didn't try to make that up. I didn't sit with my colleagues, you know, with Jane Wilson and Holly Johnson, and and uh, and and make up. Well, what do you think is best? Instead, we brought the community together, and we met with the people that were growing. We met with the people that were manufacturing, the people that were running the labs, the dispensaries, and we uh, created a forum for them to share their knowledge and experience, and then put it in the context of our. Um, broader botanical experience. And we still do that. You mentioned the Hemp Authority and Holly Johnson's involvement there. We're very collaborative. And so when the Hemp Authority first came into being and they decided to create a standard, um, we were asked to participate and we did so. Um, and we we think we contributed um, both with ideas uh, and with criticism. And then when the, um, when the first uh, draft standard came out when version one came out, uh, the authority then came back out and said, we invite further criticism. We we want to make this even better. Um, and we again engaged and, and have continued to make our contributions in terms of um, supporting that standard and ensuring that any company that complies with that standard also meets the expectation of a regulator uh, once we get to um, a, a transition in the way that FDA deals with these products, which is a topic that I hope we get time to talk about here today. Yes, excellent. I absolutely want to make that a focus. And and in fact, I think probably a good segue to that is, and, and we spoke about it earlier, another lobbying call for other groups that we're, we're involved in about how really the cottage industry, um, those enthusiastic entrepreneurs of which you just spoke, um, who are really moved by and inspired by and impassionate about these products, really created uh, this industry and started to make these products available, whether it was with hemp seed food um, or other cosmetics moving forward. Um, and we're talking about hemp, this is hemp barren, so just keeping it uh, sort of focused on hemp-derived cannabinoids. And and when we talk about the U.S. Hemp Authority version 1.0, I often describe it as the industries wanted to be able to not freak everybody out. These folks, as you say, did not even have an awareness over what the code of federal regulations are for current good manufacturing practices for substances that are going to be ingested or applied uh, to someone's skin. And current good manufacturing practices, of course, go far beyond the actual manufacturing and, and uh, sanitizing issues. And we're talking about holding, distributing, complaint management, packaging, labeling. All of those aspects are a part of current good manufacturing practices. And so we wanted in version 1.0 to sort of, I, I guess the best way for me to describe it was CGMP light. Um, and maybe you you need to be sort of eased into what CGMP actually is. Well, that way of thinking ended very clearly. It became very obvi obvious to us. I'm sorry if this is going to shock you guys. These are the rules. This is the code of federal regulations for the businesses in which you are engaged, you are manufacturing dietary supplements, including cosmetics. And so quickly went up to 
baseline CGMP compliance with the Code of Federal Regulations, and then, of course, the additional um, standards and guidelines specific to uh, specific to cannabinoids. Now, when it comes to trade associations, particularly when you are stewarding, uh, and dietary supplements are not the best friend of the FDA. I, I often describe dietary supplements as sort of the ugly uh, stepchild of the of the FDA, and we're piling on now with cannabis, whether it be hemp or other forms of cannabis. Um, but folks need to comply, and if they're going to be a part of a of a trade association there does need to be policy around that compliance and some type of, of monitoring. And I'm, I'm seeing that that's where a lot of um, various trade associations are, are popping up everywhere and even some existing that are not really monitoring uh, uh, the compliance of, of their membership and, and members are coming in, you know, ad nauseum. How does APA... I know that APA has a clear policy. If you are a member, you are following these regulations. Um, how does APA monitor it all or can deal with uh, members who are not compliant? We spend very little of our time or focus on policing. That's not our task. That is the regulator's task. Um, we have a procedure... Uh, when you apply to APA, we will review sales literature, review your website, um, specifically looking for drug claims, claims that your product can cure, treat, prevent, mitigate uh, disease or disease symptom. And we won't let companies join if we see those kinds of claims. What's remarkable is the number of times it happens at least 10 or 12 times every year. We call an applicant back and we say, um, uh, with all respect, um, uh, we can't allow you to join because you're making these drug claims. And 10 or 12 times out of those 10 or 12 times, the company says, what, what are you talking about? Really? I didn't know that. They fix it, they thank us, and then they join. It's really remarkable that we provide this pre-membership service to, and go, going back to a lot of companies that are coming into the trade because they're excited, they're passionate, but they, they're not familiar with the laws and regulations, and we provide that really as a service that uh, I think the first few times we did it, we thought we were going to uh, be attacked, be challenged, who who are you, you're not FDA, and that's not at all what we hear. What we hear is um, a recognition, acknowledgement that the company was not aware of that restriction and an immediate willingness to fix it. So uh, that's the main way that we are in the enforcement side. We pretty much rely on the Food and Drug Administration or the Federal Trade Commission or you know, the Occupational Safety uh, Administration, we, we, don't, we don't act as regulatory enforcers. We do provide educational services to our members so that they're on the right side of uh, that regulatory inspection. Which is fantastic and the, way, and the way to operate. And in fact, that is also my experience. For the most part, folks want to comply, appreciate uh, the feedback. It's very rare um, when when somebody 
pushes back and, and it's generally um, just a good little a good little red flag or a warning when someone does, but it is very rare. I, I find that uh, folks want to be a part of this industry, not just because of their financial investment, because they want to be good stewards um, of this amazing plant and the promise and, and all that it has to offer. It's, uh, it's very, very exciting and, and uplifting and encouraging to be a part of. So now let's talk about the FDA as we're aware. Uh, the FDA has been saying for a number of years now, it's just that in the last couple of years, it would seem that the state departments of health and state departments of agriculture were all of a sudden being uh, becoming aware that the FDA's guidance position is that it is a violation of federal law to market CBD uh, as a dietary supplement or food additive, and that that is because of the IND, or investigational new drug, preclusion. Um, So there isn't a regulatory framework right now. The FDA, of course, understands that it got its marching orders from Congress. The prior acting FDA commissioner, uh, Scott, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, of course, uh, immediately testified uh, in right after the 2018 Farm Bill was signed that, yes, we're here, we've got our marching orders from Congress, they want for there to be a legal pathway for these CBD products to be sold. Yet here we are uh, a year and a half later, um, and we're not very far down that path. So from your perspective, A, the regulations that you want to see, and B, any feedback or your impressions on this process of creating the regulatory framework? Sure. I appreciate that question because I think it's what those of us very involved in industry governance are talking most about. We have a class of goods in the marketplace being consumed by you probably know the numbers better than I do, hundreds of thousands or millions of people that FDA has interpreted the law to say these products are not uh, allowed in these products, so they're not regulating those products. They are Their regulation is focused on drug claims. They will go after companies for drug claims, but they're not inspecting their manufacturing facilities for compliance with CGMP. They're not demanding uh, submission of serious adverse effect reason, uh, reports. They're not um, reviewing nutritional information on product labels, all of which should be happening. So, um, and you're right, Dr. Gottlieb, uh, I believe it was on the day that the uh, Farm Bill passed in December of 2018, issued a statement that sounded very optimistic that we'll, we understand we'll need to create a pathway and we'll get there within two months. Um, his testimony had moved to within three to five years, and that's not what we need because consumers are using this product now. I appreciate uh, Dr. Gottlieb is gone. Dr. Hahn is the current uh, FDA commissioner, and his statement uh, just a couple of months ago uh, in uh, February, I guess it was, um, People are using these products. We're not going to be able to say you can't use these products. It's a fool's game to try to even approach that. I appreciate that, Dr. Hahn. What what we really need to see is for FDA to um, create, it has the authority to create the pathway. And what we have argued is that although we empathize with the difficult Uh, challenge that the agency faces, they still need to uh, 
do something because the 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 pri the priority of the Food and Drug Administration is protecting public health, and that falls away if they're not regulating the goods. So even though it will be difficult to create the pathway, we're asking FDA to, to complete that difficult task so that we can pull these products into a well-regulated structure. And, and then from our point of view, that's not particularly complicated. Regulated exactly the same way that every other botanical dietary supplement is regulated. We don't need a whole new set of regulations for hemp. We, we've, we've ironed that out over the last quarter century. It fits very neatly in the uh, regulatory structure that governs echinacea and chamomile and ginkgo and aloe, and that's where it belongs. Of the many public comments that I have drafted and submitted, it's basically in a nutshell. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. There's a wonderful existing regulatory scheme here for botanical extracts. Here's what we need to deal with for CBD or other cannabinoids. THC limit, uh, labeling, potential warnings that may be different, uh, testing, uh, even even those limits, of course, we're already using um, existing guidelines for heavy metals, residual solvents, mycotoxins, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very little tweaking or supplement, as it were, supplementation to the existing regulation uh, that we're asking for. And, and oddly enough, it was in that February of 2019 testimony, um, because he did, that December 20th was an, was an interesting, the day the Farm Bill was signed. December 20th, 2018 was an, an interesting announcement from the FDA and also the day, of course, that they approved for the first time ever grass status, generally recognized as safe status, to hemp seed oil, hemp protein powders, uh, and hulled hemp seeds. But it, it was in that same three months later or so February con uh, congressional testimony that Gottlieb said uh, we, we got our marching orders, and yet we think we're going to need $16 million in three to five years, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, and I too, while we are using uh, these really fantastic quotes as, look at here, folks who are confused about the legal status of CBD, look what the commissioner just said. He said it's a full game to even try to approach getting people to stop these things. Having said that, as you say, we still have the lack of clarity. We still have state departments of health and state departments of ag opining and this absolute patchwork of state regulation and law where we have some states uh, that are not allowing any CBD products at all, others just cosmetics, others with no oversight, while yet others have labeling requirements that are so onerous um, that a national distributor can't possibly create a label that would comply with all of the different 50 states. So it's, it's pretty untenable, um, and we need to move forward with that. Any predictions, Michael? Well, certainly from the perspective of industry, uh, we need uh, a single unified regulation all across the country. We want to support interstate commerce. We don't want to um, place some requirement that if you want to sell it in Rhode Island, you have to grow it in Rhode Island and make it in Rhode Island. Um, we, and Nor do we want a nationally sold brand to have to have different labeling in different states. It just doesn't make sense. 
I want to use an example of how the current regulation works. And the, the one that um, uh, is often cited is, well, how could we regulate this the same as, you know, Michael just said echinacea or aloe, uh, we can use the same rules, but but this one has THC in it. And, okay, so there's a part of the GMP rule, the good manufacturing practice rule for all dietary supplements that the manufacturer is required to establish a specification for any contaminant that may adulterate the finished product. Well, THC is a contaminant that may adulterate the finished product. So the regulation already requires you set a specification for that, and your specification is going to be not more than 0.3% THC. And then there's the next part of the same regulation for all specifications, not just these the specifications on contaminants, that now that you set the specification, you have to ensure that you met them. And the FDA inspector has to be able to see that you had the specification and you met it. So it's it's really not that complicated. It's not at all complicated. It's apply the existing rule to this particular botanical. In terms of predictions, um, the, the FDA will eventually create the regulatory pathway. I wish I could say when. Um, the, there, there is now a lot of pressure on uh, having Congress do FDA's job for it, having Congress force the issue. Um, I'll take that as a backdrop, but it's certainly not the preference. The preference would be for the Food and Drug Administration to complete the task. It has the authority. It has the know-how. There's some really smart people that work at that agency. and They've got resources. That's our preference, is that FDA recognize that um, this should be resolved like um, by, by just acknowledging that the uh, this herb is treated like any other. Again, they, the agency does have that interpretation that because CBD is now an approved drug, uh, there's a uh, prohibition against our inclusion of uh, CBD in any dietary supplement or adding it to any food. And we could agree or disagree with that interpretation uh, for the sake of argument. Let's say uh, FDA is accurate they have the authority to just set that aside. They have the authority to grant an exception. They need to do that. They can never meet that first priority of protecting public health until they do that. And that's what we've been asking them to do for almost two years now. Uh, when will they do that? My uh, crystal ball is just not that good. But I, but I would close with you know what the, the, the statement that you and I have both made uh, in in acknowledging that what Commissioner Hahn has said is these products are not going to go away. People are using them. Okay, then let's figure out how to properly regulate them. That has to happen. It surely does. And and what's interesting, and and I imagine this is going to come up. And you mentioned you know that zero point three percent THC. The issue is that the Agricultural Improvement Act of two thousand and eighteen defined a plant. It, it didn't define a finished product, right? So it's a 0.3, not greater than this cannabis sativa plant. We won't get into the taxonomical errors of that, but a cannabis sativa plant that does not contain greater than 0.3% delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol on a dry weight basis. So not a finished product, not a liquid product, a plant. 
So like most developed countries, Canada and so on and so forth, we're more than likely, because it's a necessity, going to be going into PPM, parts per million of THC. So for example, it can't has a maximum of 10 PPM, I believe, in uh, Canada, which of course only just this year started extracting hemp legally for cannabinoids through uh, the very uh, intricate, more medical marijuana program, the hemp folks can do that. But up until this last year, since 1998, when Canada started regulating uh, as an agricultural commodity, this crop with federal crop insurance, and Canada quickly became, and hopefully we'll catch up soon, the world leaders in bulk hemp grain food ingredient processing. Um, it's always been PPM. And I think that there's no way around that because this, this reference to 0.3% THC on a dry weight basis just does not involve finished products. So I think that there's going to be another set of um, arguing over that. For example, the EU wanted to set a limit of 5 ppm. And as is the case, most of us international trade association folks and, and industry leaders speak with each other globally. And so uh, the European Industrial Hemp Association wanted support like Let's, we want your support, America. We want you to write in public comments that says 5 ppm is correct and good. And uh, for, for me and, and for the leading trade associations here, they didn't participate. And we can't always support each other's initiatives. We try very, very hard. It feels badly when we can't. But we don't even believe there's scientific evidence to limit it to 10 ppm THC. We don't think there is any you know, chance of intoxication even at 10 ppm. So we certainly weren't going to support 5 ppm. How do you think your vast experience in the dietary supplement industry and how these things go with rulemaking, what would you, what is your prediction around that? I hate to use that word. None of us have a crystal ball, but what are, what are you thinking that might look like? Certainly the, tools available to trade associations uh, know how to address those issues, that we uh, can build on our experience with self-regulatory uh, models and self-regulatory positions to uh, come to an agreement on what is an appropriate limit for a finished product. And the best way to do that is through an open conversation, a transparent discussion with um, uh, people in the trade, people concerned about health issues, and I, th I think that can be accomplished. And, and if it is accomplished internationally, that is certainly better. Um, but we would want to be looking at exactly what you just inferred, is that let's not choose an artificial number. What is the number? What is the limit? in a finished product that would uh, be below any possibility of a physiological effect on a sensitive person? And could we agree to establish that as an industry standard? At the same time that I'm advocating for uh, a basic regulatory uh, structure as supporting this plant, that doesn't mean there you know, there still is room for uh, self-regulatory standards. You mentioned earlier um, heavy metal limits. Uh, there are no federally required heavy metal limits for uh, foods or supplements with a few exceptions. FDA has a lead limit for uh, candy uh, likely to be consumed by children, and uh, it has some for shellfish. Uh, there are 
a few limits out there, but largely we rely on industry standards that, again, this wasn't Jane and I, uh, Jane and Holly and I sitting around saying, well, these numbers would be good. Rather, we met with uh, the, the big ingredient producers. We looked at what's uh, uh, pragmatic. We looked at what's actually in the market. We studied and evaluated toxicological information, and then we arrived at recommendations uh, that uh, should companies uh, choose to establish limits for their product, we recommend these limits. So that sa same kind of process can occur here as needed. Absolutely. And for the U.S. Hemp Authority, that is precisely who we point to. Heavy metals, pesticides, microbiology, and, and mycotoxins are is that is that APA guidance. So um, it's interesting to see, you know, regulators and, and industry uh, working together and, and creating that self-regulation, plugging those holes where, where the regulators aren't um, providing that guidance or, or that standard. Let me ask you this, Michael, the FDA, and, and as you mentioned in, in a previous response, of course, it would be much more ideal if the FDA would come up with their safety data, come up with a determination and create this regulation. They don't want to be forced. Um, and even the subcommittees or the committees at U.S. Congress who, within which these uh these debates would otherwise fall. And I believe that's the, and I'm going to botch it a little bit because it's a much longer title, but the Senate Committee on Health, the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, oddly enough, also deals with these types of things. And, and those committees are even saying, listen, um, we, we wanted a chance. If there is going to be legislation on this issue, we want it to come through our committee. We want to be a part of this process. But, but again, ideally, it would be that the FDA acts. They continue, the FDA, uh, to state that they have concerns over human liver toxicity. And I'm just going to throw out a few stats, and, and then I, I really want to hear your, your thoughts on this and, and for the listeners to get the benefit, because I, I prefer and have always preferred to walk in partnership with our lawmakers and our regulators. That's just how you get things done, and it's just a, a wonderful way to be able to be joint, good, collaborative stewards um, of these opportunities. Um, and I try very hard not to be suspicious. I have a little bit of PTSD around the Drug Enforcement Administration, um, which uh, we've just been battling with for decades and decades. And, and they oftentimes seem to me to be the biggest addicts in the world in terms of being addicted to prohibition. But the FDA, I get concerned because when we talk about human liver toxicity, and we even just discuss acetaminophen, so commonly available at almost every store, I don't think there's any age limit to buy acetaminophen. Um, and yet we see that there are some 100,000 plus calls to the Poison Control Center annually over it, 56,000 um, emergency room visits, which result in 26,000 hospitalizations and an average of 458 deaths per year on intentional and unintentional overdoses of acetaminophen that have caused this liver toxicity in many cases fatal. And that those are numbers directly from PubMed.gov. And, and we've got all of this uh, talk. And apparently there were several deaths during the clinical trials uh, to prove the safety of acetaminophen. And we have none of, we have the opposite of those statistics here. So what is really going on in, in your view of this concern 
of human liver toxicity with CBD when the World Health Organization has said that it is uh, has a good safety profile and generally well tolerated. Great question. I think there's um, there are a couple of factors, or maybe thirty, and I can think of a couple. Um, one is that I think that just institutionally, the Food and Drug Administration considers drugs to be well regulated. They've got a very strict um, uh, framework, uh, especially new drugs. Uh, over-the-counter drugs is a little looser, but nonetheless, it's pretty well controlled. The over-the-counter drug monographs are very definitive. These are the substances that you're allowed to use. So I think that FDA just has a greater comfort with um, its uh, the, the framework under which it regulates drugs than it does for uh, the uh, statutory control of dietary supplements. And some of that goes back to uh, the you mentioned the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. That was not something that the Food and Drug Administration asked for, nor did they support it. They strongly opposed it, um, but it was what the, uh, the both American consumers, American citizens, and the industry uh, worked together to get it passed because prior to that, the Food and Drug Administration was actively working to create obstacles to the ready marketing of uh, vitamins, even. Uh, this it had been maybe a decade earlier, but at some point, the Food and Drug Administration established through regulation quantitative limits on the amount of vitamins that were allowed to be in a supplement form product that I think was 150% of the RDA, so that at that point, FDA had a regulation that would have not allowed any more than 90 milligrams of vitamin C. Well, that's not what people want. People want to be able to take a thousand milligrams or more. And so that law got, or that regulation was pushed aside through a legislative action. Uh, my, my point being that there's been an ongoing, <clears throat> shall we just say disagreement between the Food and Drug Administration and the people of the United States and their demand for natural products um, that's, that explains some of why there's this tension now and why there's been such difficulty in resolving it. I think another piece is that there's been a false narrative created. We've heard numerous examples of, um, I've heard this at least two or three times. Well, what are we going to do to control uh, cumulative consumption throughout the day? Here's the narrative. Um, so uh, it's you know it's almost three in the afternoon here. So I probably already had my CBD coffee this morning, and then I put some CBD soy milk over my CBD cereal, and then I had a CBD snack mid morning, and then I slathered some CBD sauce on my um, uh, uh, tortillas at lunchtime, and I hadn't even taken my CBD supplement yet. Well, that's just not true. That's a false narrative. I mean, maybe there's one or two people out there. Maybe one or two of your listeners are saying, yeah, that sounds like me. But most of them know that's not what we do. We have a CBD product that we like to take, whether it's in food or in supplements. But almost nobody is eating CBD, eating a hemp product throughout the day over and over and over. FDA has called that out as something that they need to resolve before they can get to this regulatory pathway. Uh, another example is the, um, I think the liver tox. We know that that's 
based on a very high dose um, and uh, rarely seen and does not in any way imply a likelihood of liver damage from taking the kinds of hemp products that are in the marketplace. Um, and and so I, I'm concerned, too, that FDA is, is asking questions that uh, they're asking us to prove a negative before we can go forward. Another of the narratives we've heard is these these terms have come into the marketplace. It was largely hemp products trying to differentiate themselves from pure CBD, from CBD isolate, came into the marketplace uh, first called full spectrum extract, which by the way is a synonym for extract. And then there was a differentiation, a broad spectrum extract meant to be a full spectrum extract from which the uh, THC has been reduced or some other compound been removed. Well, I keep saying, you know what we call vanilla extract? We call it vanilla extract. We don't call it vanilla full spectrum extract because it's just vanilla extract. But now we've heard FDA say they need to understand the difference between full spectrum extract and broad spectrum extract in order to understand how to regulate all of these goods. And, and you know, we're working on that. We're trying to come up with some definitions. I, I, if it if it were today, what I would tell FDA is neither of the terms mean anything. They mean extract, and we don't really need to resolve that. They mean an extract that's made when you put a plant biomass <clears throat> in solvents and make, uh, you know, simply extract it. It's not. It's really not different than vanilla extract, unless you start controlling for one or another of the compounds, and then those kinds of products do need to be differentiated. So, you know, back to the the comment that you made or the the direction that you've taken the conversation here, I think um, we have all of these issues that the agency has identified as if they have to be 100% resolved uh, before this regulatory pathway can be um, uh, created. And I think there there are parts of these that we just need to take full responsibility for. It's satisfying to see companies that are um, moving forward with their pre-market safety uh, work through uh, grass affirmation or through new dietary ingredient notifications or preparation for those. Right now, FDA won't accept those. Um, at the same time that they're, <clears throat> we, we need to <clears throat> push back a little against some of these false narratives and and make it clear that what we're all looking for is the same thing, a product that is uh, safe and readily available uh, and of good quality, which, by the way, are the same priorities that FDA um, uh, carries for all, all of this class of goods. Well, I can tell you this, hemp extract and cannabis in all of its forms and in all of the ways that it can improve our lives and improve the lives of animals, we are very, very blessed to have Michael McGuffin and the American Herbal Products Association on board, uh, helping to lead the, lead the way and really steward this, this incredible crop and, uh, and all that it can be to improve our, our lives and, and our general well-being and, and, of course, all of the promising research that's going on. Michael McGuffin, thank you so much for being with us on Hemp Barons today. I cannot wait to have you back, and I'll be very excited when we're traveling again and I get to enjoy you in person. You are a delight, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if I can, I'll leave us here at the end with a little humorous quip. If we don't get this resolved soon, Joy, we're going to have to rename the plant. 
I'm thinking we need to call it cannabis fatiga. <laughs> what do you think? It's exhausting, right? It's exhausting. We should be able to get this resolved. It's just another herb. Let's let's create a good regulatory pathway so that we can uh, support our fellow citizens who really want good quality uh, hemp products available in the market. Amen. Cannabis fatigue, wonderful. Thank you so much again, Michael, and enjoy the rest of your healthy week. All right, Joy, thanks again for the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.